Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'm going to read to you this intro, and then we're going to do a little bit of introduction. For those of you that haven't been a part of Bible studies that I do, I'm not one of these ones that goes into too much detail, laying all the groundwork and the foundation for the background of our studies, um, because there's a lot of that available out there nowadays for people to do. I'm going to give you enough that will help you kind of get launched into where we're going, but I want to just start diving into the book itself, all right? So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So we'll do a basic questions that we usually like to do. Who wrote this book? Paul. Paul. Look real quick at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at 123. Again, we're going to get from the internal evidence who actually wrote this in 123. Uh, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, look at chapter 4, verse 18. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. So it's pretty clear who wrote this. But he also wrote at the beginning here, Paul and Timothy, our brother, Timothy was with him at the time that he wrote this letter. And because he's training Timothy up to become a leader in the church as well, he actually includes him in the greeting and says, hey, Timothy's with me as well. And I love the fact that Paul was always training and mentoring others to, to work in the area that he was. Um, when was this written? Well, this is something I can help you with. It's right around 60 to 62 AD, but it's also during the same time that Paul wrote the other what we call prison epistles in his first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, I'm going to back you up, put a bookmark in Colossians chapter 1, and go with me to Acts chapter 28. We're going to look at the, the last part of the accounting or recounting of the life of Paul that Luke wrote in the beginning of the church there in Acts chapter 1 through. And in the last chapter, Acts chapter 28, verses 16 through 31, Paul, as you know, is a prisoner on a ship. He's been through the shipwreck and all this stuff that's just happened. And it says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, meaning Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You'll indeed hear, but never understand. You'll indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is an imprisonment there in Rome, yet it's a pretty nice one in the sense that he's at a house and people are free to come and go. He's not free to leave, but people can come visit him. Um, a couple of things I want to bring out about Paul's situation here is he when he gets to Rome again, he's got a heart for everyone to believe, especially his people. He even says in the book of Romans around chapter nine, he said if there was any way that he could go to hell and that would make all Israel be saved, he would do it. Not an amazing statement. He wanted his people to believe in the Messiah and be saved so much that he actually said, if I had if, if my going to hell would cause the whole Israel to be saved, I'd do it. By the way, whose heart is that? That's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that what he went through for us? He experienced hell. He experienced the separation from the Father for that time on the cross. Please don't think he suffered in hell for the three days. No. Remember, he said, it's finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't suffer in hell for three days, and then he rose from the dead. At the moment that he died on the cross is when he experienced. During that time that he was separated from the Father, and all of man's sin was put on him, that's when he became sin and... He experienced hell, which is an eternity of separation from the Father. Thank the Lord for him. It wasn't an eternity, but it probably felt that way. But there's something else I want to bring out about this. So here's Paul's heart for his people, the Jews. He gathers them. He calls them and says, hey, because Paul was pretty well known. I mean, Paul was working his way up the chain of command, if you will. He was, he, he was, he was moving up the ladder and the people knew who Paul was. So when he said, hey, guys, I'm here in Rome. Would you come see me? I want to tell you why I'm in these chains. And he preaches the gospel to them using the Old Testament, the law and the prophets to testify that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises. Some of them believed and others didn't. Now, I want to bring this out for a reason. Some of you have been duped into thinking that some people are better at telling people about Jesus than others. Correct? Wouldn't we all think that Paul would do a better job than me, right? If I were to ask you, who would do a better job at telling someone about Jesus, you or Paul, you'd say, oh, Paul. But guess what? The same Paul said the same thing to all of them. Some of them said, we believe. The others say, you're nuts. Could Paul have done a baby? Maybe Paul didn't do as good a job with, you see what I'm saying? This blows that all up. Folks, who determines whether or not they believe it or whether or not they accept it? Oh, it's, it's God's work. It's not ours. Our job is just to tell them. Give up this false mentality of thinking, maybe if I word it this way, maybe if we have a band, maybe if we do, you know what I'm saying? We think that the gospel needs our help. Just share the word of God. It's powerful by itself. 
If they walk away and say, I don't believe it, don't say, man, I probably didn't do a really good job. I wish I could have done a better job. Maybe if I had said it this way, they would have believed. Don't fall for that, folks. This right here proves it has nothing to do with us. Has everything to do, thank God for that is right, has everything to do with the word itself. Some people believe, some people don't. And Paul said the exact same thing to the whole group. Some of them did respond and some didn't. It has nothing to do with how good Paul said it. Do you understand? So no one's better at it than you. Just be you and share it and leave the results to God. Now, Paul, while he was in this imprisonment, how long was he there? Two years. Two years. Hey, Fred was paying attention. All right. Go back and take a look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and look at verses 3, 10, and 18. This shows that he's writing this book from prison there in Rome. In Philippians, I'm oh, sorry, I keep trying to say Philippians, so we've been in Philippians for so long. Colossians chapter 4, verses 3, 10, and 18. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So we know he's writing from prison. Verse 10, he also brings it out. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Does anybody remember who this Mark guy is? The cousin of Barnabas? That's John Mark, the one that they got in the dispute about and they parted company. At this point, he's there. He's actually in prison with them. And, well, not as a prisoner, but he's there visiting and they're hanging out. He says, hey, treat him good. I love that. Let me show you verse 18 as well. Verse 18, he says this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my what? Chains. Remember my chains. All right. Now, during this time that he wrote, Colossians, and there, during this two years that he's in the prison in Rome, he also wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, as we've said, and Philemon. All right, I'm going to say that to you again. If you're taking this down, during his time in imprisonment in Rome, in the first imprisonment, during those two years that he's in this house. Oh, and by the way, um, he had to pay for the house, the rent of the house itself, right? How in the world is Paul able to make the rent? from the brothers who would continue to supply and the Lord through them supplies needs. He's not out there able to make tents or go to work or do anything like that. But the body was supplying for his needs and giving donations and he was able to pay his rent because of that. But during this time, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. There's actually a lot of internal evidence here in this book that shows that the same people were with Paul when he wrote both Colossians and Philemon. So what I'm going to do real quick is show you some parallels that show us that the same people were with Paul when he wrote Colossians and Philemon. So in Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verses 7 through 15. Listen to some of the names and tell me which ones you hear again when I go to Philemon. Starting in verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, there, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, 
who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church at her house. All right. So you got some of those names in your head? Go with me to the book of Philemon. Philemon is right before the book of Hebrews. Go to Philemon now. And I'm waiting for the inevitable question. How many chapters? There's, they're gonna, so someone says, what chapter? And that's my way of smiling and saying, you've never read Philemon. All right, we're going to look at verse 9, 9 through 13 and then 23 through 24. There's, there's only one chapter in Philemon. Verses 9 through 13 and then verses 23 and 24. Paul says, uh, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, you heard that name, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But... I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, I charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. At the same time, repair a guest room for me. I'm hopeful that through, through you, your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. And then verses 23 and 24, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Do you see it? So... While he's writing Philemon, he's also writing Colossians because they're kind of tied together. Do you know, and we don't want to go into it too much because there's so much to get into tonight. But Onesimus was a slave that belonged to a man named Philemon. He ran away from his master. And in doing so, he ends up meeting Paul in Rome. Paul leads him to faith in Jesus Christ and then tells him, you need to go back. You need to go back and work for your master. But then he sends a letter with him to say, hey, Take him back as a brother and don't treat him bad because he's run away, but actually be kind of glad because in his, it sounds kind of crazy, but in his running away, something even greater has happened, that he's come to faith. And so that's a wonderful thing. But we see that Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke are all there with him. Now, who did Paul write this letter to that we call the book to, of Colossians? To, to the church in Colossae. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. Uh, yes and no, kind of. But you, you actually brought up a point that a lot of people don't realize, Allison. It's not just written to the church in Colossae. It's also written to in one other church. Do you know where it is? Laodicea. Good for you, Duke. Laodicea. Go to chapter 1, verse 2. It says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And go to verse, chapter 4, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 
and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now we've got to stop for a second. Wait a minute, where's this letter from Laodicea? I don't look in my Bible and, you know, have we have those little stickers on the side. None of them say Laodicea. Actually, and I'm one of these ones, a lot of Bible scholars, of course, I don't call myself a Bible scholar, but a lot of Bible scholars believe that the letter from Laodicea probably most likely was the book of Ephesians. Remember, the book of Ephesians, if you remember back when we began our study, that some of the manuscripts that we have don't say to the Ephesians at the top. Actually, it's blank. And most likely, the letter to the Ephesians that we call the letter to the Ephesians was a cyclical letter that was to be passed around all those churches in that area. The, the churches in the area of what we call the seven churches in Asia Minor there in the book of Revelation. They would be passed around. The Ephesian people probably put their name in. And some of those manuscripts where they copied them by hand carried on to the Ephesians as they recopied them. And so that's why a lot of our manuscripts will say to the Ephesians, but it's obvious from content and, and all that actually, most likely that letter was to be given first to the church in Laodicea, and then it was to be passed around. The book of Colossae was written to the church in Colossae. It's not a cyclical letter per se, but it was to be handed to the church in Laodicea. There was a correlation between the two things. And actually, if you do a little historical study, and this is where it starts to get too deep for me to waste any of your time, if you want to get into this, some of you that love this kind of stuff, the material's all out there and available for you. But actually, Colossae used to be a real big and powerful city, but Laodicea was starting to become that big and powerful city. And so the work of God that was happening there in Colossae was starting to move a little bit toward Laodicea as well. And Paul was working with both of them together. All right. So who was it written to? Church of Colossae for sure, but also to the Laodiceans. Now, there is much more we'll learn about the Colossian church through our study. But there are a couple other introductory points that I, have, I think will help us. Here's one. Paul didn't start this church. Paul didn't start this church. Usually he writes letters back to churches he started. But actually, the relationship that Paul has with the church in Colossae is actually through this guy called Epaphras that we see here. And most likely Epaphras was the one who God used to start the church. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. Colossians chapter 1 verses 5 through 8, it says this. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has um, come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us the, your love in the Spirit. Here's something else that's interesting about this church in Colossae. Paul had never been there. Paul had never been there. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul had actually never been to this church. He had never been there. But as you do a little study, you'll find that most likely this guy Epaphras got saved during Paul's three years of ministry in the city of Ephesus. And if you go back to Acts chapter 19, you'll see all that happened there. And he was there for three years Colossae is only about 100 miles east of, of Ephesus. And there's a strong chance that Epaphras became a believer in the Lord under Paul's ministry there in Ephesus during his three years that were there. And as he went back to his area, he probably was used of God to start this church. Now, what started to happen in this church is what happens all the time is God starts to do something, Satan will attack. But again, remember, Satan will be allowed to attack if God allows because God's going to use it for his purposes too. 
But the attack on this church in Colossae was some kind of a heresy that started to creep in, which was a mixture of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism. It's a pre-Gnostic kind of a thing. And we'll, you'll see in the study of Colossians that Paul is dealing with a lot of that false teaching that has crept into the church. We'll see a couple of things tonight. But I want you to understand that the, 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 the heresy, the false teaching that started to creep into the church in Colossae was a mixture of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism. Where did that come from? Besides the enemy, where did that come from? Well, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and they brought a little bit of their baggage with them into their faith. And folks, I don't know about you. We all got that problem, don't we? Every one of us has a little bit of how we were raised kind of come with us into whatever we're a part of. And there's a tendency sometimes for all of us to take this truth of Christ and bring a little bit of our old stuff with it. That's how we used to do it. And I think it's good. So let's just mix it all in. Well, that's how we used to do it. And I missed that part. Let's just mix it in. And we got to be all real careful to understand, is this in the word or is it just something I like so much? There's a lot of people that believe something so strongly, God has to believe it too. <laughs> I, I've heard people say to me, Jim, I know it's not in the Bible, but it just makes sense. Oh, folks, your heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Yeah, practical. Again, most of the stuff that God does is not practical. And so we've all got to be careful. It's easy for us to say, watch out for those false teachers, that heresy. Actually, the heresy just came because the Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ tried to bring some of their old stuff. And the reason there was pagan mysticism is the Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ tried to bring some of their old stuff. And let's just kind of put it all together and make it the way I feel. And why don't we just let God be God and the church look like what he wants it to look like? And folks, that's something for all of us, including the preacher. We have to be real careful. And so... Paul will be dealing with some of that stuff in this letter. All right? Go ahead. In, in, in the modern day world, where are these places? Colossae and Glad you brought that up. This right here is actually in Turkey. This area is in Turkey. Yep. Good question. But again, that's that stuff that I'm telling you. I could get into all that other stuff. But I want to get into the word. But that's a great question. It's in Turkey. It's in Turkey. Now, don't ask me where Turkey is. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's, no, it's in November. Good one for you, Bill. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. A couple more quick things, and then we're going to start breaking down the next verses. Both Paul, though, and Epaphras had the same heart and concern for the church in Colossae. You're going to see Paul say something, and you're going to see Epaphras say the same thing. Uh, you tell me what you see that, that this is similar between the two. In Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians 1, 28. It says, Him, Paul speaking, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that so powerfully works within me. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or things that are practical. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Oh, folks, I cannot even wait to get to that part. But look also at chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the, all the will of God. For I bear him, bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. What are some of the, there's something there that both of them brought out that they're really praying for and struggling for. For, the, for them. Maturity in, Christ. Maturity in Christ. Folks, you're going to see as we get into the study of Colossians that God is going to try to move us to a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is and what all has been given to you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard us say in Ephesians, when we studied in Ephesians, that he, Paul prayed that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that they'd be open, that they would read the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they may know Christ better, that they'd know the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And he says, I want you to know this. Actually, in Colossians, he's going to start bringing some of that stuff out now. And actually, in this letter, he's now giving into more details and folks, I cannot tell you how much I pray that you're able to keep coming. And if you're not able to stay on the website, thank God for what God's doing through Chris so people can stay on with us. But we're going to be diving into, in the book of Colossians, how to be set free from legalism and expectations of what the world says a Christian ought to look like. And really dive into what it really means to be free and mature in Christ. And we will build all of our doctrine, all of our theology, all of our practice solely on who Jesus is, what his word says, and that alone. And all the other stuff that might look a little bit like legalism or might look a little bit like pagan mysticism that will little by little get that stuff out of our lives as well because we don't know it, but it's there. It's there. My prayer is that God would begin to help us see that. Paul and Epaphras both prayed that they would become mature in Christ. All right, let me show you one other thing. This light letter was most likely carried to them there in Colossae by a man named Tychicus, who was also accompanying this guy Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to his owner Philemon. Back to chapter 4 of Colossians. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 again. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. By the way, does Paul anywhere that we've seen, and by the way, we've already looked at a lot of Colossians. Has he anywhere said, pray that I get out? No. He says, actually, God's doing some amazing things right now. <laughs> when it's time, I pray to be released, but only when it's time. You'll see, and he says in Philemon, I hope by through your prayers to be released to you. But you know what? 
I want you to be encouraged by what God's doing. And Tychicus is going to tell you all the cool stuff God's doing. Um, Paul, I don't know if you know this or not, but you're in prison. You're in prison. And he's probably going, what? This? That's no big deal. Folks, let me just tell you. This is the depth that I pray that God begins to really move us. Where all of a sudden our circumstances don't determine how we feel or where we are. But we can be an encouragement to all the brothers and sisters in whatever situation we're in. How does Paul say it in Philippians chapter 4? We just finished up. I've learned the secret of being content. Whether it's I have plenty or being in need. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The issue is not whether I have plenty or I'm in want. The issue is I'm in Christ. I'm good. I'm good. I have been not only born again. I'm not only sealed for eternity. I'm not only already seated in the heavenly realms. The one who controls the universe is my dad and he loves me. Oh, and he loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, and not only that, he loved me enough to send his son when I was his enemy. Oh, and on top of that, how much more will I be saved now through his life? Folks, I don't think you understand this or not, but I'm fine. And folks, here's what I want to challenge you as we get into this study. I touched on it the last time we were together at the end of Philippians. I want to burn it into your brains so that it'll begin to take root. How many of you, show of hands, know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? All right, put your hands down. For those of you that raised your hands, do you sit around worrying about whether or not you'll go to heaven? No. How come? Because it's sealed. Why else? Okay, it's done. What else? Why else? Because it's promised because he said and you believe him and therefore why worry about it ever again? It is. All right. Hang on for a second. Why don't we believe all the other promises in the same way? Exactly. This is the problem. We know we have no control of whether or not we get to heaven. That's got to be all done by God. But even though the Bible says apart from him after salvation, we can do nothing. We still think we have some control. Some of you husbands out there that are struggling with supporting your family, you think, well, I have a responsibility to support. Oh, see, that's your problem. You still think you have some say. Oh, all God asks of you is to be obedient. If he doesn't work, he shall not eat. But at the same time, don't think my right hand or strength of my right arm has given me this wealth. It's God who determines whether or not I make wealth, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. There's this balance here that we've never learned. We've got to understand that I can't make... Well, the Bible says, can I add one minute to my life by worrying? Then why do we still not believe all the other promises... Just like we believe in the one that he's already made us about eternity and salvation. My prayer is that we'll begin to move into not only knowing what those promises are, but really understanding what it means to be in Christ so that we start believing all those promises just as much. And when the checkbook looks low, you can honestly say, my God will supply all my needs. I can tell you right now, God has been doing that in me and Becky in our family's life. Please don't hear this is a bad thing because God's taking care of us. But, you know, sometimes the month runs out before the money or the money runs out before the month runs out. You ever had that happen? And today was one of those days. Oh, we got money in savings, but, you know, you get tired of moving it from savings to checking. Your, your brain says, hey, we keep doing that. That's not a good thing. And AJ's birthday's tomorrow. And we're going to be at Disney World. By the way, have you ever been to Disney World and not spent money? <laughs> His, his birthday present is my daughter, Nicole, works there, so she gets us in for free. 
But on top of that, we've got this special thing we got signed up where he's getting with the family a tour underneath in the utilidor and all the stuff behind the scenes. And we're pretty excited about that. But we're not going to get in and out of Disney for free. I can promise you. They, they're good at it. They can get money out of you even though you're getting in for free. And as we were sitting there thinking, man, what are we going to do? Because I don't get paid till Friday. And this is tomorrow. But I want it to be a fun day. You know what happens? A check for $700 shows up in the mail to us. By the way, I thank God for those new machines that you just drive right up to them and say, whoop, deposited. <laughs> I did it as soon as I opened the mail. I was like, whoo, Becky, look at this. Sign it. <laughs> when are we going to start believing that he said he would provide, he would take care? When are we going to start believing that? All these things. You're going to see this happen when the Bible takes us through this study of Colossians. All right? I have a note, Jim. Yes. I fight against my new nature in Christ, not the old man which has passed away. That's why it doesn't feel so good. Yeah. You're fighting against the new nature. Yes. How many times did Jesus say, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, all that the word of God says. How many times did Jesus have to say, why did you doubt? Hey, we're not going to beat you up in this study. But my prayer is, is that you'll start moving to maturity. You'll be, start moving to maturity. Oh, last thing, Epaphras, according to Philemon verse 23, you can go back and look at it later on. According to Philemon verse 23, Epaphras stayed behind there in Rome with Paul. Most likely Epaphras, because of this heresy and his connection with Paul, most likely having been saved through his ministry in Ephesus, rent to find where he was in Rome to talk to him about this concern that he had for the church that he was a leader of. And Paul sends this letter back to deal with it. But Epaphras stays behind for a while. All right. So let's go to chapter one, verses three through eight. And we'll start really getting into breaking this down. Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is all, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. When Paul describes God here in verse 3, as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's something he's doing here at the beginning of this letter that you might not realize. He is starting to assert the deity of Jesus Christ. He's starting to assert that Jesus wasn't just a man. He's also starting to assert that Jesus wasn't just a man from God. He's beginning to lay out for them that Jesus is God himself. Now, let me show you a couple of things that kind of illustrate this. Go to Romans chapter 15. Again, the term that he used here in verse 3 is the God, that, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 7. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, here he's starting to lay out that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know, God's my Father too, Jim, but that doesn't make me God. Oh, I understand that. Stick with me. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right. Here again, he says that God's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he's blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing from in the heavenly places. By the way, what, does anybody remember what James chapter 1 says right around verse 17, where it says every good and perfect gift comes from where? From the Father of light. And it comes down without a shadow of turning. That's right. Listen, every good and perfect gift comes from who? God the Father. And He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's continually bringing something out. Are oh, you going to see it get even more clear? Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verses 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of what? He's saying that God has got his spirit within you, but it's not just his spirit within you. It's Christ in you. Just recently I had a man say, I was listening to your radio program and I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't like how you say it. I said, what is that? He goes, well, you keep talking about someone asking Jesus into their heart. It's the spirit that comes into us, not Jesus. I said, that's not what Jesus said. He said, in that day, John chapter 14, verse 20, you'll realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. What did he just say? You're going to realize that I am in you. Yes, we understand that God is one and he manifests himself in Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And yes, it's the spirit of God who comes to indwell us. But it is also Christ. When I was a young man and being ordained many, many years ago, I was in my 20s still at the time. And there's a church there that was uh, putting me through the ordination process. And if you don't know what that is, there's serious interrogation. That is hours of them checking your theology because they're going to sign off and say this person's called of God and equipped by God to go preach. And before they'll lay hands on you, they want to make and they should. The Bible says to not lay hands on someone quickly without doing it seriously. And so I sat through this interview. There was one man in this committee who really didn't think I was ready. And he felt his job was to prove that I wasn't. So everything he asked was not to see, but to try to trip me up. And he asked me this one question. It's been a long time now. It's been over 30 years. Actually, I wasn't even in my 20s. I was 19. 
He said, who raised Jesus from the dead? I said, well, Jesus did. He goes, ah! <laughs> no, God did. He said, I lay it down. I yeah, I said, actually, and then I quickly said, let me show you over here where it says he was raised by the Spirit. Over here it says, Jesus said, I, lay, I raised my own life up. I lay it down, I have the power to raise it up again. Here it says that God did it. Oh, by the way, as you're about to see in Colossians chapter 1, who made the world? Was it God, or was it Jesus, or was it the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. I can show you we're in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. You're going to see in John chapter 1 that there was nothing made that has been made that wasn't made by Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 is going to show us the same thing. The Bible also said that the Spirit was hovering over the waters and involved in creation. Folks, we get ourselves into trouble when we try to, design, to divide God into, and well, this is this and this. No, it's all God. Yes, it's His Spirit that indwells me, but it's Jesus too. How are you going to separate him? He won't be separated from himself anymore, by the way. He experienced that separation on the cross and never to ever experience it again. So as we start getting into some of these things and we start talking about Jesus being God, please understand it may be hard for us to grasp. But the Bible teaches that there's one God. Oh, he manifests himself as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they have different roles, yet it's still God. And so here when he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking, starting to begin to assert his deity. This is why Paul goes into the great detail he does in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to do everything in my power not to preach it to you, because we're going to have to come back to this. We won't get to this tonight, or maybe for a month. I don't know. We'll see how long it takes us to get there. But in Colossians chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 20. He, meaning Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Folks, can I get any more clear? Jesus is God. Oh, but Jesus also made the world. Because God made the world. You want, you, want further, you want further proof? Does not the Ten Commandments tell us that we're not to worship any other God but God himself? We're not to bow to any other small g God except God himself? Then why does the Bible say in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue that Jesus confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If God says you don't bow to anyone but God himself. Oh, by the way, you'll see a couple of times when people meet angels, they fall at their feet because they just are overwhelmed and they start to worship. And, and the angels say, please get up quick, quick, get up. That's not, for, that's not for me. That's only for him. By the way, have you ever noticed Jesus never told anybody to get up when they fell at his feet? Folks, this is part of the problem that was creeping into that church in Colossae. There were some that were teaching that Jesus wasn't God himself. He was an emanation from God. That they say there's only one God who's so perfect and holy. And then there's, just like when you drop a rock in a pond, there's concentric ripples that go out. 
Jesus is one of the closest rings. By the way, do you realize that's what the Jehovah's Witness teach right now? If you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness, is Jesus God? They'll say, we believe he's the son of God. No, that's not the question I asked you. The question is, do you believe he's God? See, in their Bibles, they'll change John chapter 1 when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Their Bibles say the Word was a God. And it's a little G. Mormons believe that Jesus was not God himself. They believe that Jesus and Satan were brothers. Folks, if you really start looking into some of these things, and some of these people that call themselves, we're Christian religions too, the thing that separates Christianity from anything else, and I'm going to say it, from the cults, is understanding and believing that Jesus is God himself. Can, exactly. Is Jesus God? Is he God? All right. So he, Paul, in just saying, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's beginning to lay out the deity of Jesus Christ. I'll be honest with you. They'll jump hoops and tiptoe around and they've been only given certain verses they're allowed to talk on. They won't get into other verses except the ones that they've been trained on to use. So I'll be honest with you. Let me just tell you, if God leads you to talk to someone who comes and knocks at your door, go ahead and do it. But if the Bible actually says to just don't even welcome them into your house when they're teaching false things. So I just encourage you, unless the spirit of God's telling you to do, say something to them. I, mean, I, I, I had uh, uh, Mormons come to my door years ago when I was in New Orleans and uh, they wanted to talk to me about their faith. And I said, before we go any further, let me ask you one question. Doesn't the Old Testament say that if someone's proven to be a false prophet, he should be stoned. They said, yes. I said, do you realize your whole faith was based on a man, Joseph Smith, who claimed to be a prophet of God? And actually, most of his prophecies never came true and they were proven to be wrong. Well, we follow Brigham Young now. <laughs> but wait a minute. This whole thing started because supposedly uh, your man, Joseph Smith, was visited by an angel and, and God supposedly sent his angel to give him this new book to write. And I'll hang on for a second. I don't even remember Paul said in Galatians, he said, if I or anyone or even an angel from heaven come and preach any other gospel, let him be damned. I said, there's no need for us to talk anymore. Because you're trying to teach me something or have me believe in something that was started by a man. And he was proven to be only a man. Oh, and by the way, ironically, he did die by rocks. Actually, he was in prison and the people who were his followers come to realize he's a false prophet. And they all pushed the walls down in the prison they was in. He died in that way. Again, unless God's leading you to get involved with that, don't. Just say, I believe that Jesus is God. And if God shares, tells you to share a verse with them, go ahead and share with them. But don't get into because of the fact that they will jump around and only use the verses they've been trained to go do. So they won't even they won't even deal with that. They won't. Well, the Bible says don't cast your pearl before swines, too. So. All right. Paul said that he and others, though, had heard of their what? Their faith and their what? And their love. It says, uh, we thank God when we pray for you, since we have heard, verse 4, of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints. Folks, I want to just take a little bit of time on this. I don't want to spend too, too much time, but I think the Word of God can speak to this by its own. Faith and love are the strongest evidences of someone's true conversion. The Bible says very clearly that faith and love are the strongest evidences 
of someone's true conversion. Just because someone says they're born again doesn't mean they are. Just because someone says they prayed a prayer doesn't mean that they're saved. Just because someone says I've been baptized doesn't mean they're going to heaven. But the evidence of them, someone really being saved is, is Christ in you? Has he sealed the deal with his spirit? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says it this way. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Well, we can all say, well, Jesus is in me. How is anybody besides you? Because the Bible does say that his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Folks, you, I, 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 I know I got Jesus in me and I have a hard time trying to explain how I know. But how does the Bible say that you'll know that Jesus is in me? Faith. And love. Go to James chapter 2. That love part is pretty hard. It's impossible apart from Christ. Go to James chapter 2. We'll get into that, by the way, as we get into the study of Colossians. James chapter 2. Go to James chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 26. Now, I want you to stick with me here. We're going to get into this more in our Colossians study. So I'm hoping this passage I'm about to have you read doesn't give you a curveball you can't handle for tonight. But in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works or evidence? Can that type of faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works or evidence, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. He says to them, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works or evidence is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now I'm going to tell you right now that that section that I just read to you almost had the book of James not make the, the Bible. When they were wrestling over the canon of Scripture and what should be in, is from God and what's not, because there were a lot of other writings that didn't make the cut. The reason why James almost didn't make the cut is they thought James was contradicting what Paul had said. Because Paul said, we're not saved by works, but by what? Faith. By faith. James says, you say you got faith, let me see the evidence of it. He's not saying that you're saved by works. He's saying that if your faith is real, it'll manifest itself in action. See, it's one thing to say you trust God. How is that manifested? Do you see what I'm saying? And so one, Paul and the others, had Paul ever been to the church in Colossae? How did he know about their faith and love? He said so. He heard about it. Well, how could he hear about it? Because they said they had faith? Or had word spread that these people were demonstrating a life of faith? 
Folks, when you really get to that point of contentment and you really believe that it doesn't matter whether or not you got enough to pay your bills, God's going to take care of you and you are generous in the midst of your poverty, people are going to say, how in the world? Well, they, they really trust God. Their faith is demonstrated by your actions. I told you years ago, or maybe not that long ago, about the, the time that I was teaching in New Orleans to this youth group, and uh, their youth leader had cerebral palsy. And uh, one day as I was teaching them on faith, they were all sitting in this room, and I had the night before taken these big firecrackers and taken the time to get all the gunpowder out of them, emptied them, and then put the fuses back in. I knew that they were harmless. But the people I was speaking to, a room about this size with about this many young people, I took a handful of some of the biggest firecrackers and I said, what are these? And they were like, oh, those are the firecrackers. And I said, what do you know about them? They said, those are the big ones. I said, watch this. And I took out a lighter and I lit it and I lit them all and I threw them under their chairs. We're talking, it was one of the fastest fire drills you've ever seen in your life. They went, boom! The poor youth pastor, who was a buddy of mine who had cerebral palsy, he couldn't get out of his chair. And one of them was going right under his chair. This is what he was doing. He was rocking, trying to get out. He goes, he goes you did me wrong. You did me wrong. And then nothing happened. They all just went out. I had to go out into the hallways and bring them all back in. And I said, uh, why'd you run? They said, you had firecrackers and you threw fire. Oh, you believed that those were going to go off and you acted on what you believed. If you really believe, it will demonstrate itself by action. That's what James is simply saying here. Abraham could say, I trust God, but then not put Isaac on the altar. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of people in our churches today that know the right thing to say, but they're not living it out. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear is to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Listen, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot, whom so many has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love 
his brother. The real evidence of your conversion will be a faith that is demonstrated by your life and a love for everybody else. Now, I know what time it is, but I can't stop right here. I'll, if you give me three more minutes. I think we started late anyway, so I think we're okay. <laughs> There's a third evidence mentioned here by Paul that we missed. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 5. They had also, they'd heard about their faith and their love, but what else had they heard about? Their hope. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Folks, does that sound familiar? Does anybody remember those three words? Faith, hope, and love? Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about love is patient, love is kind, and all this. And then he says at the very end, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Now, I, this is why I couldn't stop. Why is love the greatest? Faith, love, hope, and love remain right now, but why is love the greatest? Because God is love, and listen closely. It is what motivated God to begin all this. And listen, it will be the motivating force for everything for eternity. They come from love. And on top of that, this is a hard thing for some of you to grasp. When we get to heaven, are we going to need to have faith? When we get to heaven, are we going to need to have hope? Your hope is complete and your faith is gone. It's complete. You don't need it. That's, that's, why, that's why love is the greatest. That's why love is the greatest. Faith and love remain, but not for eternity. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? Who hopes for what he already has? When you really get to the point of hope in Christ and hope in your future, it moves from I can't wait to I know it's there. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, things not, not seen. seen. You got it. And Folks, do you understand where we're going and why I wanted to leave us ending here? Where we can pick up next time, two weeks from now. We're going to take a look as we get into Colossians. He says, I've heard about your faith and your love and the hope that you have. Now I want to take you to a deeper understanding of those three. Because honestly, until you really understand the love of God, you won't be able to have faith. You won't be able to have hope because love is the root source of everything. It is who God is. It's not just an attribute of God. It is who God is. And it covers a multitude of Oh, it covers, we're gonna get into all that stuff. Folks, now. Do not go out of here and say, I'm going to be more loving. <laughs> you have already started off on the wrong foot. You're going to see, as we start to get into Colossians, how to understand that you have it, but you don't. You have it within you because of Christ, but in your flesh you don't. And we need to start to learn how to live out of our spiritual man. That's going to take a renewing of our mind. That's going to take an understanding of the promises of God and the, and the word of God and a daily process. Remember, process of growing in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in time, what did Paul say his heart was and Epaphras say his heart was for these people? That they would move to maturity in Christ. Do you understand how much you need to know the word? Because that's where all this stuff is rooted in the promises of God. So tonight, let me just say to you, I can't wait.
I think God in his awesomeness, the way he laid it out, I think Ephesians has been good because it gave us, hey, I want to get you ready for what's coming. Philippians, it starts getting in a little bit more as he says, rejoice. Colossians, you're going to start getting into the specific details of what it means to be in Christ and to move into maturity. And it's going to be fun. Father, again, thank you for this time to come and to study your word. And thank you for this big group that's here today. And for those that are listening online all around the country and parts of the world as well. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Now, here's what we're asking, Father, that you would give us. That you would move our hearts into your love. That's what you say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. And into the perseverance of Christ. That you would put within us a hunger to know you more, but not just know you but to know your promises. And Lord, this is what I ask for myself, for my children, for the folks here. Father, that we would begin to believe all of your promises in the same measure and depth that we believe the ones you've given us about our eternal life. May we believe those and live them out in this life now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.